Today we're going to continue studying the narrative of Noah in the first chapters of Genesis. So find a Bible. We'll be in Genesis chapter 7 in just a moment. What happens here in Genesis 7 is a fulfillment of what we saw last week from Genesis 6. God keeps His word to Noah. He's going to send a flood that will destroy every living thing on the earth. And yet, He saves Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. The main point of this chapter is very simple. I don't want to belabor it or complicate matters. The main point of this text is that God keeps His promise about sending judgment upon the earth because of sin. Okay? Let's pray and be dismissed, okay? (laughs) That's the point of this text. God keeps His promise concerning His judgment that's coming upon the earth because of sin. Now before we look at the text, I want to just briefly consider how we got to this point. Um, Just to briefly summarize what we've seen so far in these opening chapters of Genesis. Why on earth would God want to destroy everything in the earth? I'm glad you asked. Well, the reason is because mankind and womankind (laughs) spoiled God's good creation. God said He made everything very good, Genesis 1.31. But then, of course, Adam and Eve in chapter 3 believe the lies of the serpent. They doubt that God is as good as He said He is and revealed Himself to be. They disobey His word and sin enters the world. And like a cancer, sin starts in their hearts and then it starts to spread and ooze out into their children and to their children's children and to everything and everyone in the world. So Cain kills Abel, then he lies about it, brutal men like Lamech boasts about their brutality. This is Genesis 4. Godly sons of Seth marry the, into the cursed line of Cain, Genesis 6-2. All the people in the world, it says Genesis 6-5, are evil and wicked to the core. Evil and wicked to the core. And this pained God. If you have your Bible open, you might just glance at chapter 6, verse 6. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. It pained God when He saw what had happened to His world and His image bearers. And He decided to wipe out everyone and everything except Noah. Noah, verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And as we saw uh, under Jared's preaching last week, Those following verses, Moses, the narrator, reiterates what we've already saw in verse 5. In verses 11 through 13, Moses reiterates verse 5. He says the earth was corrupt three times in 11 through 12. The earth uh, was beautiful and good, but now it's ruined and spoiled and twisted because of sin. Maybe you remember on Christmas morning opening new presents and then within hours you're destroying them. (laughs) Maybe that wasn't your experience. Certainly was mine with my siblings many times. It's like a kid who opens a brand new beautiful thing and then within moments is spoiling or not using that thing for the purpose for which it was made. Earth, the earth was corrupt. Corrupt. Three times in 11 through 12. Then filled with violence. This word violence means more than murder. It's not just physical assault or murdering some other person. It's It's lawlessness in general. It's unrighteousness. It's injustice. It's anything that happens on the earth that damages an image bearer. It's referring to all the ways that we mistreat God's image bearers. Old Testament scholar Peter Gentry, Southern Seminary, points out that this term, quote, refers specifically to social violence and conditions where social social justice is lacking. So think about that for a moment. God decides, among other reasons, to destroy the earth because of societal injustice. So to get kind of uneasy about the word social justice is to get uneasy about something God cares so deeply about that He decided to destroy the earth. Because people were mistreating people in all kinds of ways. Mistreating image bearers of God. And as Jared rightly pointed out last week, when you mistreat an image bearer of God, it's like mistreating God Himself. And God was not pleased. 
The flood, then, is God's response to the evil of the human heart and the resultant corruption and violence that flowed out of it. Man ruined God's world, so God decided to ruin man. In the flood, God decided to destroy what was already self-destructing. The flood was God's way of wiping away the stain of the world's sin. So chapter 6 tells us why God is sending the flood. Chapter 7 tells us plainly that God sends the flood. Let's break this chapter into two sections. It will be my two points. First, a great flood, number one, a great flood, verses 1 through 16. And secondly, a global graveyard. A global graveyard, verses 17 through 24. So a great flood, 1 through 16. A global graveyard, 17 through 24. Again, the main idea of this text is that God keeps his promises concerning his judgment on the world because of sin. Number one, a great flood. Let's read verses 1 through 16, chapter 7. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, and also male and female, to keep their offspring alive, On the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with God as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. A great flood. Number one, a great flood. So back to verse one, you'll notice that God himself, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. And then God says that Noah is a righteous man. In contrast to the people around him, Noah is a righteous man. You might glance up at chapter 6, verse 5. It says that the Lord saw the wickedness. and Verse 12, the corruption, the violence of the world. God saw corruption and violence. And then chapter 7, verse 1, God saw that Noah was living righteously before him. The point being that God looks out upon the landscape of humanity and he notices that His grace has indeed changed Noah's life. That Noah is not like the people around him. He walked with God, which means he reflected God's character. He loved what God God loved. He hated what God hated. He, He wasn't like the corrupt people of the world. He's a righteous person. Noah's like the righteous person described over in the book of Proverbs. One A scholar of the book of Proverbs says the righteous in Proverbs are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Do you get that? So in Proverbs, you'll read all about this righteous man. Their goal in life is to disadvantage others so that they will be advantaged. Noah is like that guy. 
He is that guy. He made massive sacrifices to make the ark. Think of it. The ark took decades to make. He had to stop what he was doing. He had to put all of his time and energy and resources into this building project. He had to convince his wife and sons and, and his son's wives to join him in this project, to give up tremendous time and effort, resources to, to do this, to do something that would benefit the community, all while being scorned by that community. He was willing to disadvantage himself for the advantage of others. And this is what God's grace does in a person's life. It frees us from self-focus so that we might live radically for the glory of God and the good of others. Did you know that you could be like Noah? You could be like Noah. You're like, John, I'm not going to build a boat. That's fine. I don't want you to build a boat unless you're going fishing. You could be like Noah in so many ways. You could set yourself apart from the corrupt world that we live in by giving a friend a ride to church. By giving... $10,000 to a missions agency. By having an evangelistic Bible study with someone who doesn't know Jesus. By moving across the globe to learn another language and live among people who are very different than you. To plant the church of Jesus Christ there. You could take a church member to coffee just to see how they're doing. Catch up on them. To pray with them. You could call an estranged friend or family member that you haven't talked to in a long time. There are hundreds, hundreds of ways that you could disadvantage yourself for the advantage of someone else and thus prove that God's grace to your life, in your life, didn't stop with you but created something new in you that is going out from you. What can you do, brothers and sisters, to reveal your righteousness? Not self-righteousness. Grace makes us righteous. But then that grace that makes us righteous frees us to live radically different lives than the people around us. So whether it's reading the Bible with our kids or praying with our wife and roommates or giving sums of money to missions, we can live like Noah in ways that are radically different from the corrupt world around us. Now, I should say that chapter 7 presupposes that, that the ark is complete. That what we learned last week happened. That, that Noah did indeed, did indeed build the ark, completed it, and made it ready for its passengers. Because then in verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, the Lord gives Noah some more instructions about the animals that are going to be hitching a ride on this ark. He says there should be seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals. Now what's this about? Do you all remember, maybe you remember as a kid, you always heard the two animals, two of every kind. But then maybe you grow and you start reading the Bible for yourself and you're like, wait a second, it says seven pairs. And your whole worldview is just shaken. <laughs> I hope it wasn't, but I remember that. I'm like, whoa, my mom and dad always said it was two and it's seven. Why? Why seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of the unclean animals? Well, this is another instance of Moses assuming later information, information that he's going to give in the Pentateuch. In Leviticus, he's going to, give laws about which animals can be eaten and not eaten, sacrificed and not sacrificed. Only clean animals could be eaten and sacrificed like cows and sheep, and then unclean animals like pigs could not be eaten or sacrificed. So Moses is assuming later information for his readers. So Noah is supposed to have seven pairs of clean animals. Why? Because he'll need to eat them and sacrifice them when the boat lands. This is what we see indeed in chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the, offer, on the altar. But isn't it interesting? So it says seven pairs of the clean, one pair of the unclean. It's interesting that the unclean animals even make it on the boat because later in the law, Moses says, if an unclean animal dies, don't even touch its carcass, or you're not eligible to go to church that, day, that, that weekend. By church, I mean the temple, the, the tabernacle. He says that unclean animals are not to be eaten, sacrificed, touched if they die. Unclean animals were bad news for the Israelites. And yet God says, put them on the boat. Put them on the boat. Why? Why did God want to give them what he gave 
Noah. Why, why are they just as much an object of God's mercy as Noah and his family? Why are they spared from drowning? Well, because God sees all of his creation as inherently good. God sees all of his creation as inherently good. He loves and cares for all that he's made. Clean and unclean animals. There's a lesson for us here, briefly. Things and places and people we may see as dirty and unclean are made by God and therefore cared for by God. So instead of this posture of moving away from those we might perceive as unclean, as if we are somehow clean, apart from Christ's righteousness, is to, is to take a posture that God himself doesn't take to the things he's made. All that God made, he cares for. So he says, unclean animals, you get to come on the boat too. He cares for every kind of animal. And brothers and sisters, I said this, I think I said this two weeks ago. He cares for every, every, every person we know who is far from God. He cares for all unclean things. More on that later. Verse 4. Verse 4 says that God gives Noah a week to get on the boat. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. One week before the flood comes. So you think you've had a busy week? Can you imagine what that week was like? Moses is surely just freaking out. I mean, maybe not. He's a righteous man, so maybe he's all stoic. I don't know. But I would have been freaking out. I mean, when we go on vacation, we load the, the van for family vacation. It is like the most stressful morning of my life, you know? There's, also not to forget the dinosaurs. That's right. There's so much we can't forget. We've got to get dinosaur books. We've got to get luggage. We've got to get snacks. We've got to get phone chargers. We've got to get our children. We've got to get directions. We've got to get all this stuff, Right? And get going, and we never leave on time, ever. True or not true? <laughs> so Moses has got one week to, you know, like, where are the snails and the slugs? They're taking forever. Come on, guys. He's got to get all the food and all the animals and get them in the right places and and get on the boat and get safe. And, you know, everybody's got to be where they're supposed to be in one week because God is going to destroy the world in one week. But verse 5, verse 5 says that God helped Noah get it all done. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. This is a verse worth meditating on for a few moments. So this is another example of something we saw last week in chapter 6. God commanding and Noah executing. In 6, 14 through 21, God commands Noah to make an ark. Verse 22, chapter 6, 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God commands, Noah executes. God commands, Noah executes. It's fascinating and frustrating that, no, that Moses leaves out so much detail here. He could have told us how Noah built the ark, how he gathered the animals, how that looked, how that worked, about his feats of engineering, incredible zoological skills, but he doesn't give us any of that. Instead, Moses, the narrator, zeroes in on only one fact. What's the one thing he tells us about getting all the animals and all the family and all the supplies onto this boat. The one thing he tells us is that Noah obeyed. Noah obeyed. God commanded and Noah executed. God's grace toward Noah created a man who obeyed God. God's grace toward Noah didn't just give him a desire to obey, but helped him to actually obey. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and to pay for your obedience. First Peter chapter 1. 
Verse 18, Peter says that Jesus ransomed us from the feudal ways we inherited from our forefathers. In other, in other words, Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died also to bring us out of our former way of life. And Peter says in 2.24, 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, purpose clause, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died so that we might die to sin. I think me and the other brothers who were at together for the gospel last week, two weeks ago now, you know, I was greatly encouraged and challenged by John Piper's sermon on this text and on this topic. He said, there's an effective connection between the sin-bearing death of Christ and the sin-killing life of the Christian. Sin-bearing produces sin-killing, he said. The only sin we can conquer is a forgiven sin. In other words, Jesus' blood justifies you and sanctifies you. God's command to you, brother and sister, to be holy as he is holy is not an empty command but a very serious command. The upshot of all this, the practical import of these texts, is that if we aren't growing in obedience to God, we don't have warrant to think that we're among the ransomed. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this hits home for a sinner are you struggling with sin? Cool, I'm the only one. I need to hear this because I need to put sin to death in my life. And the reason that's not a drive-by guillotine is because Jesus died to purchase it. That I can actually do it. I can actually kill sin. Not in my own strength but because Jesus purchased it. One of the promises of the new covenant was that God would give his people a new heart, writing his law upon his heart and giving his people his spirit. Why? So that they might obey God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' sin bearing should result in your sin killing. So the question is for you, what areas, what thoughts, what attitudes, what actions, what words, what habits, what postures in your life don't reflect the holiness of God, the goodness and beauty of Christ, the kindness and mercy of Jesus. Jesus died to set us free from greed, from wanting things we don't have, from envy, from jealousy, from perfectionism, from laziness, from workaholism, from lust and immorality. From fits of anger, drunkenness, selfishness, unforgiveness, unforgiveness. Jesus died to set you free from that, friends. You don't have to carry that. Put it to death. Put your sin to death. In Jesus' name, you can and you should. And so prove that you are His. He died for your forgiveness and for your holiness by His Spirit and because of His blood, you can be holy. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Then, verses 6 through 9, Noah, it says Noah does what God says he should do in verses 1 through 3. He should get on the boat. He should take seven pairs of the clean, one pair of the unclean. So 6 through 9 tells us he did what he's supposed to do. Verse 10, in verse 10, God does what he said he would do in verse 4. So verse 4, in seven days I will send rain on the earth. Verse 10 after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So Noah did what God said, then God did what God said. God kept his promise about sending judgment on the earth because God never breaks his word. 
And because God always keeps his word, God always does what he says he'll do. Have you ever noticed how many things the Bible says God will do? As you're reading the Bible this week, let me encourage you just to maybe jot down or meditate on a few of the things, we could call them promises. Oh, they're, they're not always couched in that language, like I promise to do this. But these things that the Bible says that God will do. Just notice. I started making a list, and it filled up a lot of space. I had to cut that down pretty significantly because the sermon would have been too long. Here's what I came up with, though. Just listen to this sampling of things God will do. He will remove his people's heart of stone and give them new hearts that want to obey him. He will gather in his elect from among the nations. His people will hear his voice and come to him. He will have mercy on those who repent of their sins and come to Christ in faith. And he will send those who don't to everlasting punishment in hell. The Bible says that Jesus will build his church. He will defeat Satan. He will discipline those he loves. He will bless those who are persecuted for his namesake. He will draw near to the brokenhearted. He will never cast out those who are his. He will comfort those who mourn. He'll hinder the prayers of husbands who don't honor their wives. He'll provide for the financial needs of his people. He'll only give good gifts to his children. He'll bless those who bless the poor. He'll provide for orphans and widows. He'll uphold the weak. He'll hear the cries of the afflicted. He'll cause us to reap what we sow. He'll help us conquer sin by His Spirit. He will end all wars. He will judge the wicked. He will bring down the proud. He will bring down those who boast. He will exalt the humble. He will give His people new bodies and make for them a new world to live in. He will baptize the world with fire. He will save His people from His judgment. He will give His people pleasures forevermore in His right hand. He will give His people a sight of His face. We will see His face. Everything that the Bible says God will do, God will do. Has God lied? When has God lied? When has He broken a promise? Why would we not trust someone who always does what He says He will do? Why would we not trust someone who never lies and always tells the truth? Noah did what God said. Then God did what God said. He kept His promise because He always keeps His promises. He said He would judge the earth with a flood. And then He judged the earth with a flood. Because He never breaks His word. Brothers and sisters, you can take God's promises to the bank. You can build your life on them. You can build your life on them. You're like, John, I'm just doubting all the time. I am too. Doubt is real. Trials are real. Weakness is real. Sin is real. Satan is real. The promises of God don't guarantee that we're just going to coast through life. But the promises of God, they will buoy your life. They'll give you somewhere to put your feet when everything's shaking. So when you're reading your Bible, notice. Notice. Notice what God says He'll do. Just start noticing what He says He'll do. His promises are everywhere, and they're amazing, and He will do them. Now that brings us up to verse 11. Verse 11 says that the fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of the heavens were opened. This reminds us of chapter 1, verse six, uh, verses 6 and 7. Flood waters coming from two, for, uh, two sources, waters below, waters above. There's a lot of language here that reminds us of creation, isn't there? Verse 14, all the beasts according to their kind, livestock according to their kinds, creeping things according to their kind, according to their kind. Remember that from Genesis chapter 1? What's the author doing? What's Moses doing? He's helping us see that the flood is meant to be understood as a decreation event. Just as God created the earth and everything in it, he's about to decreate the earth and everything in it returning it to its conditions before the first day of creation. Chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is about to return the earth to that state. 
The whole flood narrative, chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, is meant to show us the decreation and then recreation of the earth. Decreation in 6 and 7, recreation in 8 and 9. The end of everything will be the beginning of everything. The earth will die because of sin and then be resurrected by the power of God. Through this death and resurrection, God's covenant people will be saved and preserved. Notice the end of verse 16. The end of verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. That's Yahweh, the covenant name for God. The Lord, your personal God, the personal covenant-making relationship establishing. I will be your God. You will be my people, God. I, he says to know, will shut you in. He's going to be on the outside of the ark, protecting the ark and its precious cargo from his wrath, from the floodwaters of his judgment, because he loves his people. They are his. He will never abandon them. So we've seen a great flood. Number two, let's look at a global graveyard. A global graveyard. Number two, verses 17 through 24. 17 through 24 say this. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily, mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was, was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. A global graveyard. The camera zooms out to what's happening outside the ark. Through the flood, God has turned the whole world into a global graveyard. There's a parallel here between the ark and the Garden of Eden. Being inside the ark is like being inside the garden. Being outside the ark is like being outside the garden. Inside the garden, inside the ark is life and salvation and abundance. Outside of the garden, outside of the ark is death and condemnation and destruction. Verses 17 and 18 say that the floodwaters bore up the ark, that the ark floated. So the ark neither, uh, neither sunk nor capsized. Thank you, Jared, last week for pointing out that there were no motors on the ark, no steering wheel, no navigational system, no GPS, no rudder. It was a box that floated. And it did indeed float. It says the ark floated. Meaning for us that if Noah and his family were to survive, it will only be because of God's grace. Divine grace, not human skill, is what will bring Noah safely home. You might remember the hymn, Amazing Grace. <laughs> Last uh, T4G, Alistair Begg said, if you can't preach good sermons, at least quote good hymns. So here we go. Amazing Grace. Anybody heard that song before? Remember that line? Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and... Grace will lead me home. Grace has brought me here. Grace is going to take me the rest of the way. Can you imagine getting onto a boat with no steering wheel? No motor? No map? Noah's totally dependent on something outside of himself for his salvation. Grace brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. Brothers and sisters, it will be with you. Grace saved you. Grace will, will save you. Jesus will bring you home. You're like, my life is jacked up right now. I'm screwing up things left and right. Jesus will get you home. Jesus will get you home. Jesus will get you home. He will get you home. Many of you want me to digress onto verse 19 and 20 and talk about whether this was a global flood or a local flood. I think it was a global flood. 
You might be curious about these high mountains. Like, how did a flood cover Mount Everest? That's 30,000 feet. Well, there's good reason to believe that the landscape of the earth wasn't the same before the flood as after. For more on that, see my son, Elisha, a burgeoning scientist. I think it was a global flood, but I don't want to get lost in that debate because the main point of these last verses is far more serious than that. The main point of these last verses, 21 through 23 in particular, is that everything that wasn't on the ark died. It says it three times in two different ways. Verse 21, all flesh died. Verse 22, everything that had the breath of life died. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing. They were blotted out from the earth. 2014, there was that movie Noah that was super inaccurate, entertaining somewhat. But one of the things that got right, I think, was the gravitas of this moment. You've seen it. You might remember that when the floods come and the ark starts to float, there are thousands of people scrambling up the hills and trying to get onto the ark, screaming, screaming. They had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to go. They were doing all that they could to get to the highest dry point before they were all washed away. And they were, they were indeed all washed away, <laughs> not just in the movie, but in reality. Notice the text says that all flesh dies. It doesn't say they drowned. Verse 23 he, God, blotted out. They were blotted out. Meaning we're under, uh, meant to understand this not as a natural catastrophe, but as the result of God's judgment. This death is the result of a divine penalty, not a natural disaster. This means, parents, as we're teaching the story of our children, and meditating on it for ourselves, that this story isn't about cute animals on a Caribbean cruise. It's about God killing every living thing on the earth that wasn't on the ark. Everything died that wasn't on the ark. The end of verse 23 is a bright spot. Only Noah was left. The ungodly were washed away. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark. The Lord did this. The Lord preserved Noah. The Lord brought the flood. The Lord brought judgment. The Lord brought preservation. It wasn't nature or fate or global warming or aliens or Hollywood. God controls the destiny of the godly and the ungodly. Noah doesn't survive because he's smart or strong or savvy. After the flood, in a couple of weeks, we'll see that Noah's heart and all of his family are just like everyone else's heart. Evil and wicked. He's not somehow inherently different. The only difference is that he received grace from the Lord. Noah is saved because God saved him. Friends, if you're saved, it's because God saved you. I'd encourage you to ask and meditate on this question often. Why are you a Christian? <laughs> Why are you a Christian? Just think about that question during your quiet times this morning or this week. Why are you a Christian? Because God. That's where you start. Because God. Because God. Because God. Not because I believed, because I walked an aisle, I filled out the card, I prayed the prayer, I was baptized, I'm a good person, I'm not who I was, I'm, I'm not sinning as much as I used to. Why are you a Christian? Because God saved you. Because God saved you. He controls the destiny of the ungodly and the godly. Of course, God always saves people through the mechanism of faith, Hebrews 11:7 by faith Noah after he was warned 
about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. Noah was persuaded that what he'd not seen would become a reality. He exercised faith in the unseen promises of God. Noah couldn't see how God would decreate the world through a, through a flood. He had no concept of a global flood that would destroy the world. But he believed in what God said, even though he hadn't seen it. Because faith looks to the unseen and trusts in the promises of God. Faith isn't irrational. Faith is not irrational. Faith embraces a real God with real promises about real things. Faith doesn't rely on people's opinions or our emotions, but trust and hopes in the Word of God and His promise despite what's going on around us or in us. This is why we must say often, I'm trying to say more often, that doubt doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Remember what Jesus says about the mustard seed? Faith the size of a mustard seed. Mustard seed. It's pretty small. We'll gain entrance, gain you entrance to the kingdom of God. Faith is a looking away from yourself to God, trusting that He is who He said He was, said He is. He will do what He said He will do. He has sent His Son to die on the cross, bearing your sins and the judgment that you deserve. He has raised up Christ from the dead so that everyone who puts their trust in Him and turns away from their sins will be forgiven of their sins, that granted righteousness and live with God forever in heaven. These are real promises about a real God. By faith, Noah was saved. By faith, we believe that another flood will come upon the, uh, come upon the world, a flood, of, a flood of fire. Peter reminded his readers that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, and then he says in 2 Peter 3, 6, and 7, But the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. When Jesus returns, he will baptize the world with fire instead of water. It's hard to believe this because we haven't seen it. But let me remind you that you also haven't seen the wind or your emotions or other galaxies without a telescope. It doesn't make those things any less real. Just because you haven't seen something doesn't mean that it's not real. Many in Peter's day were saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But then Peter tells them why the Lord hasn't returned yet. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should, reach, or should, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I love that we met goodwill this morning in Pilgrim's Progress. Goodwill. God's goodwill, His good pleasure, that He indeed wants people to come through the narrow gate, the wicked gate, the small gate. He wants people to come to Christ. He wants people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Why hasn't He come yet? Because He still wants people to be saved. You're like, I don't know, you know, the Antichrist and, the, and you know, this is supposed to happen and, and then He'll come. No, the only reason Christ hasn't come yet is because He's still wanting to save people. So, brothers and sisters, keep sharing the gospel. Keep sharing. Keep telling people. Jesus is still wanting to save people. He's not slow according to, you know, to keep his promise, as Peter says. He's not slow. He'll do it. The flood of fire will come. While we wait, we wait with hope that he wants to still save people that are far from God. He wants, he desires people to come to repentance. But nonetheless, Peter says the day of the Lord will come. And it will come like a thief. This echoes what Jesus said about his coming. He describes his coming as Lauren Red. His coming will be similar to the way the flood came in Noah's day. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' point is that his return will be surprising. 
in Noah's day. People were living their lives without reference to God. And then suddenly God swept them all away with water. So also when Jesus comes, the world will be full of busy, ordinary life. Most of the world will be engaged in business as usual when the lightning of the Son of Man flashes from sky to sky. Brothers and sisters, don't we often think that things will always be as they always are? It's tempting to get lulled to sleep about these eternal realities. The end is coming. The world will not continue like this forever. It will come as a surprise to many, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to God's people. So we have to fight the tendency to become consumed with ordinary life, home life and school life and business life and church life, which all, the, all this ordinariness, this busyness can deaden our senses to the reality that this world will indeed end. This doesn't mean that you should retreat from the world and go be a monk and kind of just be, you know, separate and isolated. What it does mean is that you live all of the, uh, you do all of the ordinary things that you do with an eye towards the fact that all of it will end one day. I mean, everything, get crazy. I was literally reading my Bible this morning and I was like looking around the room. I'm like, this is all not going to exist one day. It's sobering. I'm like, I really like this chair. This is one of my favorite chairs. All of it will go away. Christ will come, and we should not be surprised. So later, Jesus says in the same text, Lauren read, he says, stay awake, for you do not know at what hour your Lord is coming. Then Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So because God will baptize the world with fire, Jesus and Peter tell us to stay awake and baptize our lives with holiness and godliness so that we look radically different to the world that's perishing. It changes the way you watch the game when you know how it ends. The flood was God's way of wiping away the stain of the world's sin. But of course, the waters of the flood weren't strong enough to wash away sin. The flood did come. The flood did wash away all except who were on the ark. But even that cataclysmic event wasn't strong enough to wash away the sin. And even Noah's heart. Another flood would have to come. Another, even greater flood would have to come to wash your dirty heart. You're like, John, that's kind of mean. Well, it's in the Bible. I mean, we are all unclean. Apart from Christ, we are unrighteous. We have sin. God is right to be angry toward us because of our sin. And yet, He hasn't given up on us. The cross tells us that He hasn't given up on us. That He sent another flood. We sing about it. There is a fountain filled with blood. Come on, help me out. From Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Brothers, are you washed? Are you washed under the flood of Jesus' blood? Some of you may not yet be following Jesus. The flood of forgiveness that he purchased for you is free. It's free. The only thing you have to have is a recognition of your need. Your admission that you need forgiveness, that you haven't kept God's law, that you do stand condemned, that you are deeply broken. And in that moment, in a mysterious way, the blood, the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ washes you. It makes you white. So Noah prefigures for us what God will do in Christ. God sends his son Christ, a righteous man who trusts in God, obeys God, a man who disadvantages himself for the good of his community. 
to inhabit a wooden vessel that will bring God's people safely through the floodwaters of God's judgment. Jesus is the new and better Noah. He himself is rescued from death by God, being raised again so that everyone who puts their trust in him will be saved from death and judgment. Friends, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, why don't you talk to someone you've come, come with or maybe someone you're sitting next to or maybe me at the, in the foyer after we're done. Ask questions that you have. We'd love to help you know what it means to follow this Jesus and understand this forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, those who have trusted Christ, um, we also need to look at Jesus like the ark. Jesus is a safe place for us. Jesus shields us from the torrents of hell and the torrents of our turmoil and the torrents of our pain and the torrents of our sin and the torrents of this world and the torrents of work and the torrents of kids and the torrents of family and the torrents of everything that rages against us. Jesus Christ stands forth as, as your ark. You'll just come in and find refuge in him. Let the Lord shut you in his house. Trust in him. Let him steady you. Cling to the ark of Jesus' cross. And if you do, all, all who do will pass safely through the floodwaters of God's judgment and land in a new land of life and delight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word and write it on our hearts. May you help us to see the things that we need to see. Every one of us is, is at a different spot. Um, none, of us are, none of us are right where we should be or right where we want to be. All of us have some kind of torrent, some kind of flood that... that, that we feel might do us in. So bring us, Father, to your Son. Bring us to the rock and the refuge of Jesus Christ. Steady our hearts. May you send your Holy Spirit to soothe our souls and bring all those who would repent and believe to Christ for safety. Help us to remember that the end is coming. Help us to live in light of the reality of a flood of fire that will engulf this world. Help us to stay awake. Help us to be ready. Help us to live lives that reflect the glory and goodness of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.